I hope you have a Bible with you today. If you don't, there are some in the chair racks. Grab one. If you're not familiar with how to use a Bible, lean in to somebody next to you that has one in their hands so that you can see some of the things that we are talking about just for yourself and with your own eyes. Starting in the first chapter of Psalms. If you want to open up right to the middle of your Bible, that's where you'll find the book of Psalms and go to the first chapter. It has been called by scholars the door or the key to understanding the whole of the Psalms. Now, that's not all that surprising. It's the first chapter. And so it really should set the framework for what we're going to study going through the rest of the book. But this first chapter of Psalms, the door or the key to everything else. And you'll see why very quickly. It's only six verses long, so let's read the whole thing. Here we go. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now when I say that this chapter sets the stage for everything else that you will study in the book of Psalms, it does it by dividing people into two categories, just two categories. Hopefully you caught it as we read those six verses, but if you didn't, here they are for you, the righteous and the wicked. And the division between the two is pretty plain in these six verses. The wicked seem to be measured by two things, the mocking and the scorning of the Word of God. It is as if they have never heard or never paid attention to other places in Scripture like Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, which says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God will not be mocked. And Psalm chapter 1 lays that out as God says in those six verses that the way of the wicked leads to them perishing. They will not prosper. They will perish. And then there's this second group of people, the righteous. And it would appear in those six verses in Psalm chapter 1 that the thing that, that sets the righteous apart is how they approach the Word of God. By all appearances, the psalmist is saying that the righteous delight in the Word of God, seemingly holding on to teaching like this in other places in the Bible, like Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. They delight in the Word of God, understanding that the key to knowing God is found right here. The Lord gave us His Word that we might know Him. Then as you make your way on through the rest of the Psalms, you can begin to see the separation between the wicked and the righteous rise up. You can see it grow and magnify as you make your way through the rest of the book. 
That's why Psalm chapter 1 was referred to as the key or the door to understanding the rest of the Psalms. It helps us decide which group we want to be in. Do I want to be counted among the wicked or do I want to be counted among the righteous? If I choose the latter, by the time I get to Psalm chapter 37, I begin to see a rhythm in my life. If I am choosing to be counted among the righteous, this rhythm becomes evident. It becomes a choice, something that's going to drive me on a daily basis. We started looking at that rhythm last week. I call it the 24-hour spiritual rhythm that God hardwired within us. Let me show it to you one more time. Join me in Psalm 37. You're already in Psalm 1. Let's just go to Psalm 37. Take a look at these words again. It's a Psalm of David, King David. He writes, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. There he is, talking about the wicked again. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. And there you have it. In just those seven verses, once again, we see the division between the wicked and the righteous. And it all seems to hinge on how we approach the Word of God. And that actually shows up in the midst of the 24-hour rhythm. Four things that take place in that 24-hour period. Trust, delight, commit, and rest. We talked about those from Psalm 37 last week. Once again, very simple. Trust, delight, commit, and rest. Now, here's a simple way of thinking about it. This is a graph that Beth put together for us. It begins in trust moves into delight, there's a point where we commit, and then at the end of the day we get to rest in whatever happened, knowing that God was on His throne throughout the course of that day, and knowing that we didn't have to compete with Him for that throne. We trusted Him. We delighted in His ways and in His Word. We committed ourselves to doing what He reveals to us, and then we rest easy. We just rest easy in what God has given us. Last week, we talked about this first segment, trust. Well, this morning, I want us to move into the idea of delighting. Because the difference between the wicked and the righteous is how we approach the Word of God, and it appears that the righteous are defined as those who delight in the laws of the Lord. That means delighting in the Lord. Then we need to really figure out what that means. And very possibly, figuring that out means that we need to look first at the word delight and just determine what it means. Here's a pretty good working definition. Delight means to take pleasure or to give joy or satisfaction to, and then you can plug in whatever you want. In Psalm 37, we're saying that delighting means to take pleasure or to give joy or satisfaction to the Word of God. 
to love the Lord by loving His Word. If we want to really delight in God, we're going to have to get to a place where we can delight in His Word. Because to delight in the Word is to delight in the Lord. Let that soak in. To delight in the Word is to delight in the Lord. And what you will quickly discover when you learn to delight in the Word is that it draws you back time and time again. Read your Bible today and you'll want more tomorrow. When you've figured out what it means to delight in the Word of God, read your Bible tomorrow and you'll want it again the next day. I'm going to allow it to pull me back so that I can be drawn to it. Now, a way of illustrating that might be something along these lines. might not resonate with you, but it does with me. Imagine your favorite meal. Somebody offers it to you and you just can't wait to dive in. You want to you wanna get on that plate. You want to get moving in it, and especially if your favorite dessert is involved in it. You are drawn to it. That was illustrated for us this last week. Our son Eli came home yesterday to hunt with me and then to celebrate his birthday with his mother and myself because his mother earlier in the week texted him and said, hey, Eli, your birthday's on Thursday. We know you can't come home, but if you want to come home on Saturday, you could go hunt with your dad and then I'll make you your favorite meal for your birthday. Eli texted back and said, I'll be there. And then Tina shot a message back to him and said, what do you want? And he laid out the whole menu and the crown jewel at the end of it was this banana pudding that she makes. Oh, oh my word. And Eli wanted to come home for that. Last night when she served that up, it was fairly late in the evening. She was in the kitchen and Eli said, and I want a lot. And so she just kept heaping it in and kept heaping it in, drawn to that bowl of banana pudding. Maybe you know what that's like. It, it takes precedent over everything else. I'd like to think that what Eli really wanted to do was come home and hunt with me for his birthday, but he really wanted to come home for his mama's cooking, just like his brother or sister would if she threw that offer out. I'll make you your favorite meal, whatever you want. They're going to be here as quickly as they can make it. Well, the Word of God is the same way. When we delight in it, it draws us in. When we delight in it, we want a lot. When we delight in it, we can't wait for what is there tomorrow and the next day. When you learn to delight in the Word of God, you know what it means to be drawn to it. And that's part of what sets the righteous apart from the wicked, delighting in the Word of God. And that means delighting in the Lord. Now, here's one of the interesting things about it. When you delight in the Word of God, you find that it ushers in a special invitation to the Holy Spirit. Join me in the Gospel of John, will you? John chapter 14, verse 15. I want you to listen really close right here at the beginning. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, these are Jesus' words. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, these words are read. Jesus is saying them. Verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am the Father. I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Simple teaching in John chapter 14 tells us that as we obey the word of God, the Holy Spirit finds a home within us. Now, when we give our lives to Jesus, there's no question about it. We receive the Holy Spirit. But according to John chapter 15, we seem to receive this increasing measure of the Holy Spirit based on our obedience to His Word. The more you obey His commands, the more you walk in step with the Spirit, the more the Spirit leads you. And it may not be that we receive the Spirit in increasing measure, it just may mean that we pay a lot more attention to the Spirit and follow Him where He leads. But all of that is tied back to our desire for the Word of God, to do things the way God said to do it. So here we have Jesus telling us that obedience to the Word of God invites the Holy Spirit into our lives. And back in Psalm 37, it would seem like the psalmist is teaching us that that happens on a 24-hour rhythm. That if we will start our day in the Word of God, we are inviting the Holy Spirit to govern our day. If we will start our day in the Word of God, then we're going to walk in step with the Spirit throughout the course of the day so that the next two parts of that rhythm, committing and resting, will be fairly easy. And you may say, but I'm not a morning person and I I just don't know that we have to read the Bible in the morning. I'd rather read it at noontime when I'm just sitting out in my my car, my truck, in the parking lot, or in the woods, or I'd rather read Scripture when I go to bed at night, and nothing wrong with either of those things. But if we want to see the 24-hour rhythm work the way it is supposed to, then we need to read our Bibles and desire the Word of God first thing in the morning. That may mean getting up just a little bit earlier. It may mean starting your day a few minutes before you had planned to so that you can be in the Word. You might say, well, that sounds good for you, Phil, and that, that's fine that it works for you, but really is that necessary? Well, let's just see what the Bible says. I want to show you four passages of Scripture that will teach us about the power of reading the Bible in the morning. Here they are. Number one, Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, the last half of it says, Weeping may tarry for the night. But joy comes with the morning. 24-hour rhythm. Yesterday may have been a bad day, but if you want to change the course of today, start with God's Word because God's mercies are new every morning. We talked about that last week. So if I want to put yesterday behind me and I want to move into today in a new frame of mind, I'm going to begin in God's Word. I have trusted Him 
And now I am going to delight in Him. Number two, this is from Psalm 92, verses 1 and 2. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love, ready for it, in the morning, and your faithfulness by night. There's some of that rhythm again. I'm going to spend time in the Word of God in the morning and at night as I lay down to go to bed. I'm going to reflect on God's faithfulness. 24-hour rhythm. It works. Here's number three. Psalm 143, verse 8. Let me hear, once again, in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. See a little bit more of that rhythm? I've already trusted in you, so let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. And the way we're going to do that is through His Word. I'm going to open up my Bible, and I am going to desire what God has for me, whatever that might be, because I've already trusted my day to Him. Now, Lord, show me my next step. Here's number four. Oh, sorry, that was number four. We just left off in it. So we can ask ourselves this question, and it's a pretty good one. Where does all of this begin? Where does this start, this type of a delight for the Word of God? Is that just something that comes naturally? Is that something that happens when we're baptized? Is that something that happens when we have given our life to Jesus? What, where does it start? Well, there was a, a church not very long ago in Chicago, a very large church, that set out to answer questions like that. And they started in the most interesting of ways, in the study of discipleship. Now again, discipleship is this churchy-sounding word that just really means whether we're walking with God or not, what our relationship with Him looks like. So, they brought in an outside consultant to work with one of their staff members named Greg Hawkins to figure this whole thing out. And together, the consultant and Mr. Hawkins started interviewing people in their church in a collection of data type of mindset. They put a survey together and then they met with people individually. The first thing on their survey they believed was going to answer their question about levels of discipleship better than anything else. It was going to define people's relationship with the Lord better than anything else that they were going to explore. This was it. They were going to look at people's weekly church attendance and their involvement in church activities. And they figured that those two things would help them determine the depth of relationship that a person had with Jesus. They were wrong. They found that out very quickly. What they found out was that there were a lot of people that attend church on Sunday morning and are highly involved in church activities that don't even know the Lord. They discovered that. Now, as a church staff member, that's a tough revelation. That's a difficult thing to come to terms with. And it kind of slapped them right upside the head. They didn't want to see that. So their next group of questions, the next categories that they wanted to get into were how long people had been in a relationship with the Lord or how long they had been attending church and involved in certain activities. Their belief was that longevity would determine depth. Now think about that for a second. Longevity would determine depth. 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 They were wrong. 
shockingly so. There were a whole lot of people that had been in church their entire life that as they continued to peel away the layers of the onion, they discovered that they knew very, very, very little about who God was or who His Son is. So then they had another section that they thought might help them out. They were looking at age and race and a few other things that fit within that category. And then they put it all together and they thought that was going to answer their question. And they were wrong. They were wrong. So finally they determined and it came not through Greg Hawkins but through the consultant and it came months and months and months after their initial research. He came back to Chicago and met with Greg and said, I have the answer. I have the answer. If we want to determine depth of relationship with Jesus, it all hinges on one question. Just one question. And this is it. How important is Jesus to you? That's the question. How important is Jesus to you? Now, the wording of the question is exceedingly important. If you were to ask it this way, how, or is Jesus important to you? People are going to say yes or no, and it's a dead-end question. So it was exceedingly important that they ask it this way. How important is Jesus to you? So they ask members of their congregation that question, and in the, the process of it, they began to see four different groups of people show up in the church. Four different groups of people that rose to the top. And in their belief, most of the people in their church, outside of those who were coming solely as seekers, people that were looking to find a relationship with God initially, once they got past that, then these four groups seemed to govern everyone. Here they are. Take a look at this. These are their four groups. Group number one, categorized by folks that would say, I believe in God, but I'm not so sure about Jesus. My faith is not a significant part of my life. Group number two, I have a relationship with Jesus and am working on getting to know him better. Group number three, I feel very close to Jesus and depend on him daily for guidance. And group number four, my relationship with Jesus is the most important relationship in my life. It influences everything I do. Now, as you look at that, chart up on the screen ask yourself this question and it's only for you you're not going to have to tell anybody after the service is over the answer to this you're not going to have to turn to your neighbor or anything like that this is just between you and God which group are you in which group are you in let me walk you through just a little bit more of their research Group number one are people who, for the most part, believe in God but are unsure about Jesus. Their relationship with God is impersonal. Group number two are people who do believe that Jesus is God's Son and who are working on what that means for their lives. Their relationship with Jesus has become personal but not close. Group number three are folks who have a close relationship with Jesus in which they look to Him for help, comfort, and direction. They have chosen to have him influence their daily lives. They might describe themselves by saying, I feel really close to Jesus and depend on him daily for guidance. 
Greg Hawkins would say, I'd be really happy if we just got everybody in our church to group number three. But remember, there's a fourth group. Group number four includes people who describe their relationship with Jesus as the most important relationship in their lives and say that it defines everything they think and do. Now listen to this. The big difference between group three and group four is that to the people in group three, Jesus is important to their lives, but the focus is still on their lives. While group four people have decided that their own lives don't truly matter, Christ has become the center of their lives. They have set aside the agendas for their lives and are attempting to live for God. There's a difference. The difference is focus. Between group three and group four, a shift happens. It's no longer about what God can do for me. It's about what I can do for Him. Jesus becomes the center of our lives. And the defining difference between the two is how we approach the Word of God. It is how we approach the Word of God. Because remember, to delight in the Lord is to delight in His Word. I want to read His Word and do what it says. I want to read His Word and be changed by it. I want to read His Word and have it so soak into me that it governs everything that I do. In the realm of discipleship, measuring the depth of relationship that we would have with the Lord, it's determined by how we approach His Word. For a lot of people, the Bible is just a book. For a lot of Christians, the Bible is something that they own, but it doesn't own them. Let it own you. Get into the Word of God and soak it up. Soak it up. So if we can wrap our mind around the idea that discipleship begins in how we approach the Bible, the Word of God, and we can get to a place that we delight in it, then we have to wonder this. What's that going to look like? What is that going to look like? There are some people in Scripture that give us a pretty good handle on that. People like Philip, his story is found in John chapter 14, verse 8. That's just a little portion of his story. I'll back up. Jesus said, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, that was Jesus talking to Thomas. Philip steps in and says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Show us the Father. That was Philip saying, I want nothing more than to see God. Show us the Father. There are other people in the Bible that understand what Philip was talking about. People like Moses. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said to God, Please, please show me your glory. He wanted nothing more than to see God. Moses and Philip, let me see you. I want to see you. My belief will be stronger because I have. Let me see you. I will walk with you every day if I can just see you. Let me see you. 
Jacob may very well have said the same thing. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 26, he would, he would actually verbalize it like this. Then he said, let me go, that's God, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob, it wasn't enough to say, let me see you. He had wrestled with God all night long and he had God by the leg and he wasn't going to let him go. I'm going to hold on as tight as I possibly can until you bless me. I won't let go until you bless me. Once we've arrived at a place where we can say, Lord, let me see your glory or show us the Father, as Philip would say it, then once we've gotten there, we're going to hold on as tight as we can and say to the Lord, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. Philip wasn't alone. Moses wasn't alone. Jacob wasn't alone. You're not alone. There are people that are so in love with God that they are clinging to His Word for all their worth, doing what it says that they might see the Father, that they might be blessed by the Father, that they might experience His glory. Just go back to Philip's simple request of Jesus. Show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Well, God's done that. Romans chapter 1 would say that God has revealed Himself through all creation so that all men are without excuse. That's true for all mankind. But for God's children, He's taken it deeper by giving us His Spirit and His Word that we might see Him. Now, hopefully you're already holding on to the fact that obedience to God's Word shows us more of the Spirit and helps us walk more in step with the Spirit. So ultimately, if we want to see God and really know Him, it's going to come back to how much we desire and delight in His Word. How much do you delight in it? And maybe you're saying, I've never thought about it this way before, preacher, and so I want to delight in it. How do I do that? So happy you asked. It is a simple process of changing how you read Scripture. That's all it is. You have to move from reading Scripture for information into the realm of reading Scripture for transformation. Write that down if you're a note taker. Make sure you hold on to that because you're going to want to come back to it. It is a simple change from reading Scripture for information to reading Scripture for transformation. That's the key to this. Now, let me show you the difference. We'll start with what it means to read Scripture for information. Now, you know what that looks like. It means opening up your Bible and just reading to see what might be on the page. That's reading for information. And it's characterized by these five things. Informational reading of Scripture is all about covering as much ground as possible as quickly as possible. It seeks to master the passage. Informational reading of Scripture looks for Scripture to manipulate according to our interest or desires. Don't you hate that one? Don't you hate that one? You ever looked in your Bible to find something that would back your play, that would just back up what you wanted? 
A lot of people do that, and it also involves something called proof texting, where you take things out of context. You may take one verse of Scripture out of an entire passage, let that one verse of Scripture stand on its own, but if you put it in context, it's not what it meant at all. It's called proof texting. Number four, informational reading of Scripture is analytical, critical, and judgmental. And number five, informational reading of Scripture is driven by a problem-solving mentality. That's informational reading of Scripture. Now, a lot of that comes from me, but some of it is fueled by a lady named Karen Maines as well in a book that she wrote called The God Hunt. So those five things are kind of a morphing of things that I would say and she would say all at the same time. But when we make a jump from reading Scripture solely for information and get into the realm of reading it for transformation, here's what happens. Transformational reading of Scripture seeks to meet with God, is in-depth reading that takes as much time as needed to let it soak in. Transformational reading of Scripture seeks to let the passage master us. Number three, transformational reading of Scripture allows the reader to be controlled and conformed by the passage, requires a humble, detached, receptive, loving approach. And transformational reading of Scripture holds on to the mystery that we call God. And when you can hold on to number five, every time you pick up His Word, you'll be amazed by it. Because the Bible is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it says of itself. Penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That's the Bible. And when we understand that, and we know that it is the key to seeing God, boy, it changes everything. The Lord gave us His Spirit, and then He gave us His Word. I love how Job summarizes what happens when we really get into God's Word. This is Job chapter 42, verse 5. The author writes, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you. Listen to that again. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I'm in the Word of God. Now I haven't just heard about you. I've seen you. I've experienced you. I delight in you. I trust you, and I delight in you. And so when you ask something of me, I will commit my ways to you in such a way that at the end of the day, I will rest easy knowing that you led the way. Spiritual rhythm. And it cycles every 24 hours. Every 24 hours. That is why it is so important for us to develop the spiritual discipline of daily Bible reading. Not just waiting to come to church on Sunday morning and hear what the preacher has to say or go to small group throughout the course of the week and hear what the teacher has to say or even to just go to Sunday school so that I have three things that I have heard throughout the course of the week. It is all about your delighting in the Word of God and starting your day with Him. If God's mercies are new every morning, then you start every day in the cycle Develop this discipline because it will take you into a place where you can say, I had heard of you by hearing, but now my eye has seen you. I have seen you. 
Start your day in the Word of God. Every day. Every day. Develop it. It's a discipline. It takes work. But when it becomes your habit, you won't want anything other than that. It will draw you to it like Tina's banana pudding. And you'll say, give me more. Heap it up. Lord, keep it coming. I'll leave you with this thought. I'm one who believes that if we're going to read the Word of God and we are going to delight in it, then that means all of it. We don't get the privilege of taking out portions that we don't like. We don't get the privilege of skipping over things that maybe seem long or hard to understand. God has something for us in those passages. We have to avoid the trap of simply reading the same passages over and over and over again because we're familiar with them. You have to read all of it. You have to listen to all of it. You have to delight in all of it, even when it tells you something you don't want to hear. If you're going to be mastered by the passage rather than trying to master the passage, then you're going to have to be willing, ready, and able to accept what God has for you even if you don't like it, even if culture doesn't like it, even if society doesn't like it. Even if there are organized groups of people that would tell you it's wrong, if you trust in the Word of God, then you delight in the Word of God and all of it. All of it. Don't cherry-pick portions that make you feel good. You absorb all of it and delight in all of it. And if you are convicted and transformed by it, then act upon it. We have to. God would teach the Hebrew people that very lesson in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Last week we talked about the fact that Psalm chapter 37, a lot of this 24-hour rhythm is tied to Deuteronomy 27 through 30. At the end of chapter 30, God would say this to His children, listen close. For this commandment that I command to you today, this is verse 11, chapter 30, is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today 
that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Once again, we see the difference between the wicked and the righteous. And it all boils down to how we delight in the Word of God in the law of God. And ultimately, that means how we delight in relationship with God. Made possible through His Son that we can delight in relationship with Him, that we might see Him, that we might hold on to Him, and that we might know His glory. Oh, get into your Bibles. Get into the Word of God. Start every day right there every day, that you might be changed by what you read and experience. Transformed, if you will. Read deep. Read deep. Read slow. Let it soak in and let it change you, that you might be more and more like Jesus the closer you get to seeing Him face to face. I'll leave you with that thought. Stand and pray with me. Father in heaven, I'm glad that Philip verbalized how so many of us feel. Just show us the Father, and that'll be enough. So happy that Moses captured what's in our hearts. Lord, we want to see your glory. And Jacob knew where we would eventually one day end up as he held on tight to you and said, I won't let go until you bless me. And I'm glad that in each of those situations you answered the same way you do for us. I've given you my word. Now do it. Read it. Digest it. Desire it. Delight in it. Do it. Thank you, Lord, for that message. I pray we will. And Lord, in those days where we don't want to start with you, Make sure you pull us back. In those days where delight seems far off, remind us that your mercies are new every morning. That today has enough problems of its own we don't need to worry about tomorrow or even yesterday. We just need to walk through today with you. Remind us of that. And Father, remind us often of your Son because He's the one that made all of this possible that we can have relationship with You. So, Father, help us love Him as He has loved us. And Lord, I ask that on all of our behalves, mine included. Father, help me love Him as He has loved me. In Jesus' name, amen.